0: Well, if you think about all the people in your life, right? Family, uh, friends, coworkers, even acquaintances, fellow church members, neighbors, right? All the people that you know. And if you were to make a list from among all those people, a list of the ones that you would be willing to risk everything for, The people you'd risk your own welfare for, your own security and comfort and lifestyle. The people you'd actually risk your life for. I imagine for most people, that would be a pretty short list. Family, maybe certain friends, right? If we're being honest, how many people in your life are you actually willing to risk it all for? And yet, If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you probably already know that you have been called by Jesus Christ to live like Jesus Christ, which means laying your life down for other people, including the ones who are not on your list. Strangers. Lost people. People who don't know you or Jesus and don't necessarily like either one of you. Now think about that, and then ask yourself, how much am I willing to risk for them? What am I willing to risk for someone who doesn't care about me at all? Right. It's one thing to lay your own life down for someone you love and who loves you back. But how many of us are willing to take a risk for someone who would never do the same for you? That's a very different question, and yet it's a question that we are going to have to answer if we're going to not only be discipled, but if we're going to actually make disciples. Because look, to gather with other believers like we've done here, to to study the Word together, to worship together, to be discipled, that's great and it's necessary, but it doesn't really cost you anything. Right? There's some time involved, but there's no inherent risk, at least not in this country at this point, to being discipled. Making disciples, however, that's a different proposition altogether. Making disciples is full of risk because making disciples means reaching people with the truth. Truth that sometimes they don't want to hear and will not accept. In fact, uh, not only will they often reject that truth, but they'll also reject you. For sharing it. fact is, one of the hardest things in this world to do is to tell someone the truth when the truth is the last thing they want to hear because of the rejection and the consequences of that rejection that often come with it. Right? That's exactly what happened to Jesus. He spoke the truth to people who didn't want to hear it. And they killed him for it. And yet knowing that's exactly what was going to happen, he spoke the truth to them anyway. Well, why? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus risk everything for the sake of people who didn't know him, didn't like him, didn't agree with him, didn't care about him at all? Well, it has to do with one of the commands that he gave his disciples to you. To me, in fact, of all of Jesus' commands, these three simple words are some of the easiest for us to recite and the hardest for us to follow. Luke 6, 27, love your enemies. We're good with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're good with love your neighbor as yourself. We're good with love one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're good with the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. We're good with all of that. But love your enemies? No, I don't think so. Not so much. And yet, when Jesus gave us the Great Commission... Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Listen, there was no escape clause in there. There are no exceptions for the people who are not on your list. And furthermore, that commission wasn't given to his disciples in good times. You know that, right? The the great commission was given to the church when the church was under heavy persecution when they were running for their lives, when simply identifying yourself with Jesus could get you killed, when the government had turned against them, when they were being falsely accused, unjustly targeted, unfairly treated, when they had every earthly reason to revolt, to lash out, to demand just treatment, to fight back, when they had every good reason to hate their enemies, Jesus said, love them. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. We don't do that. Bless those who curse you. Who does that? Pray for those who abuse you. We don't do that. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Not as they do to you, but as you wish they would do to you. That's how you're to treat them, regardless of how they actually treat you. We don't do that. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive what Credit is that to you. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father's merciful, Luke 6, 27 through 36. In other words, Jesus says, love people the same way that I love them, especially the ones who are not on your list. You understand that's not only the command of God, it's the heart of God for you and for me. And as we're going to see in our story today, as we continue working our way through 1 Samuel, this wasn't simply a New Testament concept either, as David, who is described as a man after God's own heart, was willing to risk everything by sharing God's truth and love to the very man who was trying to kill him, his greatest enemy on earth. It's the same way Jesus lived his life. And it's the same way he calls us to live ours. Not hating our enemies. Not fighting with them. Not forcing our will or our ways on them. But loving them right where they are. You understand... The overwhelming impression this world is supposed to have of people who call themselves Christians is not a group of people who stand up for their personal rights and fight for just treatment under the law. No. Now, the overwhelming impression the world should have of us is a group of people who are so committed to loving others that we routinely lay our own lives down for those who are not on our list, the ones who don't believe what we believe or think the way we think or act the way we act, the people who reject what we have accepted and even hate us for it. Listen, you want to do something radical, something revolutionary, something that actually brings real change in this world, well, then you live like that, just like Jesus did. Love your enemies, and then you'll change this world. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time at 1 Samuel chapter 26, and and we're going to see what life looks like when you truly learn to love those who are not on your list, your enemies, the people, in fact, this world says you're supposed to hate. We'll begin with the first 12 verses. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Achila, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Achilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So the Ziphites continue to align their loyalties with Saul, as we've seen before, and as before in chapter 23, they once again betray David's whereabouts to Saul. So David takes his 3,000 hand-picked special forces with him to find David and kill him and his 600 men. And at first, reading this story, it seems almost like another version of the story back in chapter 24, where David cuts off a corner of Saul's robe in the cave instead of killing him, which is what David's men wanted him to do. But actually, this is a very different story for several reasons, not the least of which is David's purpose behind his actions, which are very different here than they were before. And so in the previous story, David was hiding from Saul in a cave with no intention of seeking out or confronting Saul whatsoever when Saul happens into the very cave that David and his men are hiding in. And yet in this story, David hears that Saul is in the area. And so David goes looking for him and he finds Saul and his army encamped on the hill of Achilah. And so he asks two of his most trusted men, Ahimelech the Hittite, not to be confused with Ahimelech the priest back in chapter 21, and also Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, which we know from 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 2, was David's nephew, Zariah being David's sister. And so David asks them without any further explanation, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And without hesitation, Abishai, David's nephew, says, I'll go down with you. Because Abishai believes this to be an assassination attempt, as we'll see, to finally rid them of their enemy, Saul. Which becomes clear as they pick their way through Saul's army, sleeping on the ground and camped all around them. They make their way to Saul and Abner. Abner is Saul's cousin, his personal bodyguard, and the commander-in-chief of Saul's army. And, and uh, they're the royal spear. The very same spear that Saul had repeatedly tried to kill David with is stuck in the ground right next to Saul's sleeping head. And of course, Abishai knows that David is unwilling to kill Saul himself, which David demonstrated to all of his men in the cave back in chapter 24. So obviously, this must be why David took Abishai with him, right? To kill Saul so that David could rightfully claim that he never laid a hand on the king. It's the best of both worlds for David, as far as Abishai was concerned. Saul dies, David becomes king, and he has no guilt of having to kill Saul in the process. And clearly, given the circumstances, this must all be God's doing to serve up to David, the perfect scenario to finally destroy his enemy, to take what is rightfully his, namely the throne of Israel that's been promised to him by God himself. And Abishai is all too eager to see it through. As he says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. You have to admit, it feels good, doesn't it? If you've been following this story, You know how evil Saul has been and how horrible and unjust his treatment of David has been. And now Saul is served up on a platter in front of David and one of his best men. And it feels good. It feels right. But David has other plans. And so instead of allowing Abishai to kill Saul, he takes the spear by the way, the symbol of Saul's authority and power, and he takes the jar of water, the symbol of Saul's life-sustaining resources, and he leaves as harmlessly as he came in the dead of night. David, what in the world are you thinking? You just risked your own life sneaking into the enemy's camp to steal a spear? and a jar of water it doesn't make any sense to Abishai or to us the fact that David was willing to risk everything for people who hate him and yet when you consider the divine supernatural ways that God had been working on David's behalf throughout his time in the wilderness it actually begins to make sense Whether it was a perfectly guided stone at Goliath in chapter 17 or a word of revelation to Nabal in chapter 25 or a deep sleep for Saul in this case, each time the result was the same. The Lord was teaching David his endless capacity to supernaturally provide exactly what was needed to protect and provide for his people in the midst of every kind of unfair unjust evil treatment by their enemies without his people having to take matters into their own hands apart from god you understand it's not that uh, it's not that david didn't care it's simply that he understood that vengeance belonged to god alone david said as the lord lives the lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he'll go down into battle and perish. Either way, it's up to God. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. In other words, Saul will get whatever God sees fit for Saul. That's not my decision to make. My job is to share the truth of God and the love of God and then let God manage the results. The Apostle Paul said it this way. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. with What? With good. Romans 12, 17 through 21. So look, if, if vengeance belongs to God, you know what that means, right? That means vengeance does not belong to us. On the contrary, our job is to love our enemies and never repay evil with evil. Okay, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yet how many of us in the same set of circumstances would have thought just like Abishai did instead of David? This is an opportunity, clearly, (laughs) This has been given to me by God to destroy my enemy once and for all. And listen, you understand, Abishai's intentions were as good as they could be. They were. Abishai's intentions were as good as they could be. And he was dead wrong. There was Saul fast asleep with a spear next to his head. Who could orchestrate these circumstances but God? And killing Saul would mean God's chosen man for the job. David gets the job. And Abishai is more than willing to do it, taking the guilt away from David. Abishai meant well. But he wasn't trusting in God to do God's part. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of Christians today, right now in fact, who mean well, but they're not trusting God to do God's part, so they're trying to do it for Him. So whether motivated by fear or opportunity, they're trying to exact vengeance on the very people they're supposed to be sharing the truth and love of Christ with. They're more concerned with justice for themselves than salvation for others. They're more concerned with giving people what they deserve rather than what they need. So let me ask you, where would we be today if Jesus had felt the same way? Thank God he was willing to forego justice for himself. Thank God he was willing to be mistreated, abused, rejected and killed. Thank God he was willing to risk it all by sharing the truth and love of God for the sake of people who hated his guts. Thank God for that. Because as a result, you and I have been saved. We got what we needed instead of what we deserved. There's a whole world full of people who are lost and dying and doing terrible things. They're doing evil things, and yet we're not giving them what they need because we're too busy trying to give them what we think they deserve. It's on social media. It's on the news. It's all around us. Christians lashing out at the people who are not on our list instead of sharing the truth and love of Christ with them. Listen, please understand. I love our Constitution. I do. I am profoundly grateful for it but when you conflate the value of the U.S. Constitution to equality with the Holy Scriptures, you're conflating the founding fathers, fallible men, to equality with an infallible God, which is a really good way to start believing that we're qualified to do God's job for Him. But we're not God. And his word to us on the matter could not be any clearer. It is his job alone to exact vengeance on our enemies. It is our job to love them. Why? Because God so loved the world. And because he loves them too, he gives them every possible opportunity. How? Through us. For them to turn back to him before it's too late. It's the heart of God for us to love people who are not on our list. And it was the heart of David as well, as we'll see as we continue the story. Let's keep reading verses 13 through 20. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. And as the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. In other words, if this is God, then let me make it right. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they've driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So in the pre-dawn darkness, David's voice echoes across the canyon as he called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? As he's speaking, by the way, every time David says, you, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord, your king? All of those yous are plural in the ancient Hebrew, meaning, although it may sound like he's just talking to Abner here or just talking to Saul, David is actually addressing all of them. When you really look at what he's saying to them, as harsh as it is, David is actually recounting God's word to them and their violation of them of it. You see, driving David beyond the boundaries of Israel's land, which Saul is doing, is, is Saul virtually forcing David to serve other gods and therefore forcing him to break the first commandment. And when he took refuge among the Philistines back in chapter 21, being a good example and more in the future, as we'll see, because listen, in this time, Worship of Yahweh could only legally take place in the Lord's land where the presence of the Lord was known. And so by chasing David away from the Lord's heritage so that he wouldn't have no share of it, and then effectively forcing him to serve other gods in these other cultures and other religions by being banned from Israel, Saul and his men are actually committing a capital offense against the Lord God of Israel and against his word, and according to David, should therefore be cursed before the Lord. It's what his word says. In other words, David is standing there speaking the truth of God's word to these men, and he's calling them to repentance for their sin. It's amazing, and yet he does it all with great humility. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. In ancient times, the Arabs figured out that if you chased a partridge, these little birds long enough, they would eventually become so weary, so worn out that they wouldn't be able to fly. And so the hunters would just keep relentlessly pursuing these birds until they could literally knock them down with their clubs. That's what David is comparing himself to, a flea or a partridge. In other words, a nobody that could easily be swatted down by Saul and his men, even though David was far from a nobody. He was God's chosen man to be the next king. But David's personal rights and rightful place were not his chief concern at this point. If they were, he would have destroyed Saul when he had the chance. No, David spoke the truth of God's word to people who hated him for their benefit, not his. Now look, certainly doing the will of God, as David was, would benefit David immensely in the future. That's true. But if David's chief motivation at this point was to alleviate his own suffering and the injustice being done against him by his enemy, the king, then again, he would have simply killed Saul in his sleep. No, see, David was compelled to, Out of love for these Israelites, he was compelled to speak the truth to them, even though they hated him and were trying to kill him. You see, for David, what they needed was far more important than what he wanted. And so he chose to share the truth of God's word with them with great humility instead of exacting judgment on them that they deserved. This is one of the reasons he's described as being a man after God's own heart because David saw people, lost people the same way that God did. And I'm telling you, if we truly saw people, lost people, if we truly saw them, even the ones who hate us, if we saw them the way that God sees them, I think we'd spend a lot more time sharing the truth of the gospel with them than we would passing judgment on them. Because what they need would become far more important to us than what we want. Look, uh, although living like that may not benefit you or satisfy your immediate desires, in the long run, you will reap immeasurable benefits in your life, right? As uncomfortable And unfair and unjust, as David's time in the wilderness was, it shaped him to be able to be the kind of king he became. And it increased his capacity to lead people to God through every kind of unimaginable circumstance in the future. So look, as uncomfortable and unfair and unjust as life can be to us at times, if you will commit yourself to sharing the truth of Christ with great humility to the people who were not on your list instead of passing judgment on them. Look, it may not feel great today but God will shape you and he will increase your capacity to love and lead others to him and your life tomorrow will be enriched in ways you cannot imagine today. Remember what Jesus said, love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. Truth is, Sometimes the absolute best thing for us is us not getting what we want. Because loving your enemies, look, it's never going to feel good. Laying your own life down for people who are not on your list, that's never going to be easy. Risking your own comfort and well-being by sharing God's word with people who don't want to hear it, that's never going to make you popular. And listen, your personal rights, whatever you think you're entitled to, doesn't factor into it at all. According to the word of God, you're called to die to yourself, to lay your life, your rights down for the sake of leading people who are not on your list to Christ. Listen, guys, the simple truth is We have to get over ourselves and this idea that we're somehow more entitled to defend our personal rights than Jesus who gave up all of his rights to save people who hated him. American missionary and evangelist Paul Washer said, I live in a culture, he's talking about here, I live in a culture that always demands its rights. I'm called to give up every one of them. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. David answered and said, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. So Saul, as so many times before, expresses his remorse for pursuing David and acknowledging his mistakes, his sin. But this time his words ring hollow as David is finally learning to take them for what they are. Sincere, deadly lies. And as a result, David doesn't even acknowledge Saul's offer for David to return home. And yet what David does to was no less shocking than had he gone home with Saul that day. David not only shows great mercy to Saul, just as Jesus commanded, be merciful even as your father is merciful, but David bestows an incredible blessing on Saul as well by giving him back his spear, which was not only a physical, tangible blessing, by the way, but it was also David symbolically restoring Saul's power and authority. The very things that David was entitled to. You see, David was a blessing to people who hated him because he understood the principle of sowing and reaping long before the apostle Paul taught it in Galatians 6, 7. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap, right? David seemed to have a firm grasp on the fact that if he blessed his enemies, God would bless him in return. His life would become something much bigger than anything he could take for himself. So here's this spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And so the very weapon, that Saul used time and again to try and murder David with, David freely gives back to Saul. This is a blessing that cannot be overstated. First of all, imagine Saul having to explain to his army and the Israelites how David got his spear and yet chose not to kill him with it. Imagine that conversation. This was a blessing with immense meaning and value to Saul, giving back to Saul what was rightfully David's. This was David publicly acknowledging Saul's kingship, even though David had already been anointed as Saul's replacement. But David was determined to bless Saul instead of taking what was rightfully his. Listen, as a Christian, you're supposed to do good to those who hate you you're supposed to bless those who curse you you're supposed to pray for those who abuse you according to Jesus now you tell me what would this world look like what would this country look like for that matter what would your life look like if every time someone who is not on your list someone who hates you curses you abuses you. What would your life look like if every time your rights were violated by someone like that if you blessed them instead? I'll tell you what it would look like. You need not look further than David, than Ruth, than Esther, than Paul, than Peter, than John, than Jesus. Men and women whose lives changed this world literally forever. Forever. How? Why? Because they were willing to risk it all for people who were not on their list. And the question is, are you? Because your life as a Christian is supposed to be a blessing even to your enemies. And I just just wonder, honestly, Is that what the world, who hates the church, by the way? Is that what the world sees from us? Is that what the world is getting from us? Are they being blessed by the church today? Or are they being judged by the church today? Are you blessing those who hate you? Or are you cursing them? Are you giving them what they need? Or are you giving them what you think they deserve? Do you love your enemies? Or do you hate them? Because the overwhelming impression this world is supposed to have of people who call themselves Christians is not a group of people who stand up for their personal rights and fight for just treatment under the law at all costs. No. No, the overwhelming impression this world should have of us is a group of people who are so committed to loving others that we routinely lay our own lives down for those who are not on our list, the ones who don't believe what we believe or think the way we think or act the way we act, the people who reject what we have accepted and even hate us for it. So I ask again, What risks are you willing to take for the people who are not on your list? Strangers, lost people, those who don't know you or Jesus and don't necessarily like either one of you. What are you willing to give up for them? Are you willing to give up your pride? Are you willing to give up your rights? Are you willing to give up your life? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's exactly what he expects you to do. To love your enemies. Let's pray.